Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here as always with David Scott. Fantastic to be back and uh, welcome back, Paul. I hope you uh, had a safe trip overseas. I did. Um, I was in the beautiful United States of America, up in New York City for, um, for a week, which was great. Um, I did manage to uh, go and see my family in Ireland as well for a couple of days, which was nice. Um, but uh, I think um, we've got an exciting guest uh, and I think very apt, given that one of the biggest talking points in the world right now, if not the biggest, is what's happening in the United States political system. Uh, we're honoured to be joined by Martin O'Malley, uh, who's former governor of Maryland. He was previously uh, mayor of Baltimore. Uh, he's been described as the most entrepreneurial name in government in the United States. Um, and this year he had his first tilt uh, at securing the Democratic Party's nomination for president. Um, so uh, Martin is now a, um, a visiting professor at the University of Maryland and uh, in Georgetown, uh, where he's teaching performance management and, um, and uh, up the, looking at the future of business. Uh, he's an expert in urban issues, um, of which are all subjects of vital importance to economics and politics in the developed world. Uh, Martin, welcome to the show. How are you finding Sydney? Hey, I love Sydney, Paul. This is one of, well, this is one of the world's great cities. I was here once before when you guys did such an outstanding job of hosting the Olympics. Now I think back, that must have been like 15 years ago. 15 years. But I love the generosity, the openness, and warmth of the Australian people, and, and this city's just a, a beautiful, stunning city. Thanks for having good weather for me, too. Yeah, so, look, we will certainly cover some markets and economics and um, talk about the future of cities uh, over the course of the show, but let's jump right on in and um, ask Martin um, about what everybody really wants to know, which is what the hell is happening to the Republican Party? Ah, the, the U.S. presidential election. Well, the, where, where to begin? Um, one of the one of the people that's at Georgetown with me is a former Republican consultant strategist named Michael Steele, and I heard him describe what's happened to the Republican Party in this way. He said that uh, Donald Trump is is best understood as a third party candidate who has hijacked the nomination of the traditional Republican Party. Uh, it was something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime, uh, the overtly fascist appeals, racist appeals, uh, xenophobia on steroids, the sort of uh, uh, white ethnic, if you call it that, uh, the sort of ethnic nationalism, the encouraging of his supporters to use violence against opponents, promising in the, other, in the most recent debate that he would jail his opponent if he were to win the election. All of this is pretty disgusting stuff that uh, we're not accustomed to seeing in America's presidential races. I mean, for all of their failings in the past, we never had such an overtly uh, fascist and racist candidate as we have in Donald Trump. I believe he's going to be repudiated. Uh, I believe that uh, after these two debates, Secretary Clinton is, is uh, uh, solidifying her base. I believe people in the U.S. are starting to talk more and more favorably. Uh, those of us who support Secretary Clinton uh, have been, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't think the word's emboldened, but I think the word's certainly maybe spurred into greater action uh, by the urgency of this uh, 
constitutional threat represented by Donald Trump, a nominee who doesn't, who even professes not to adhere to aspects of the Constitution. Uh, so, guys, that's what's going on. Um, the cause of it is, is maybe the the the, the deeper question. Uh, I don't think it's enough to deplore this candidacy. I think we have, to, as Americans, uh, we have to understand what's at the the heart of the. There's a big signal. There's absolutely a big signal uh, in there in the the fact that, I mean, if you look back to say two weeks ago, I mean, the polls were, you know, um, was, Clinton was still leading, but mm-hmm. but but. Um, Trump was still in with a fighting chance. Now, in the last week or so, and I think um, a combination of um, Trump's uh, some of Trump's comments in the second debate, um, but then also this tape, which I think many people in right, where America he was bragging just, about sexually assaulting women. Yes, um, bragging about a habit and pattern of sexually assaulting women. And, and this stuff uh, really, you know. For the votes that he may be, people in middle America who were maybe considering voting him, that you're voting for him, that this would have had, I think, would have caused a lot of people to have a, a very, very close look at his character. Yeah, let's hope. Huh? Let's, that's my hope, anyway. But um, were you surprised, though, by how tight it had been um, up to, say, two weeks ago? No, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't terribly surprised at this point. In fact, I. He pr- I don't think he'll get less than 40%. I mean, even with all of what should be debilitating marks against him. Because he's under... I mean, there... Let me take a deep breath and back up a second. Uh, A big part of the reason why I ran for president was that after traveling all around the country and going to 30 or 40 state party dinners, talking to people, especially listening afterwards... I kept hearing people say, we need a change, we need a change, we need a change. So this desire for change was not exclusive just to the Republican Party. Uh, A lot of Democrats wanted change. And when people think that the economic opportunity game has been rigged against their family's success by their own politicians, then voting becomes solely an act of protest. Uh, I saw Vice President Gore, former Vice President Gore, speak at the University of Maryland not long ago, and he said the most revealing thing he saw about the, 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 the our collective psyche, you know, kind of where we're at as a people, was a man on the street interview of a 50-year-old blue-collar white man, lifelong Democrat, defending his vote for Donald Trump in this way. He said, "The way I see it, our country's got cancer." and Donald Trump's just the chemotherapy we need. It's very, very hard to disqualify chemotherapy by simply calling it poison again and again and again. In fact, for those people who have already made up their mind with regard to the diagnosis and the prescription, it only makes the chemotherapy more attractive to keep calling it poison. I call it the break the kitchen table vote. There's a lot of people out there who are so feeling so alienated from their nation's governance and their nation's politics that they just want to break the kitchen table, nah, uh, even though in, in their hearts they know that never put more food on it. I think certainly one of the big um, elements of this and certainly a big part of, um, I suppose, you know, 
the way Trump has been appealing to people at an economic level and talking about, you know, um, you know, protecting American jobs and, and um, trying to reinvigorate some of the, you know, traditional heartland, uh, you know, American industries like the car industry, etc. Hmm. Um, but it's been, you know, there's this um, uh, absolutely this sense in a lot of um, developed countries that the disruption from the process of globalization and competition between nations for particularly manufacturing jobs, um, but other types of jobs as well, um, that this has been, if you like, um, something that they, they can't control and, and these right. populist protectionists, this populist protectionist politics is, is something of an answer, uh, an answer to that. I do want to quickly look at something that's been happening in the global economy um, lately, um, because we always sort of look at this, but there has been a, we always look at, um, we always try to look on the show at the, the, the global economic picture. And in the last few weeks, there's been a bit of a shift in, um, the conversation around China. David, um, what have you been seeing there? Well, it's not so much the shift uh, recently. I think it's uh, more so the shift that's been going on since about uh, early February this year when uh, the Chinese policymakers went and turned on the fiscal taps uh, to go and help uh, buttress the, uh, their economic uh, activity levels, which were clearly on the decline. And we saw what was going on in financial markets at the time, not just in China, but uh, elsewhere. There was a lot of... Uh, a lot of concern being expressed and very big falls. I think for the U.S. stock market, it was actually the, uh, the worst start for the year on record, uh, and that was almost entirely due to concerns about China. Uh, but what they've been doing is they've been rolling out a whole lot of fiscal spending programs uh, to go and help economic output, and it's working. Uh, you see at the moment a lot of the economic data that's coming through. It's not spectacular but by Chinese standards, but certainly it's, uh, it's improving. Uh, and I think it... As, sound as, it, as, as, uh, as strange as it sounds, it actually reminds me a little bit that uh, you've seen what's been said now in other countries around the world where policymakers have been entirely using monetary policy to go and try and derive economic outcomes. But now this conversation has shifted more to the fiscal side of things, uh, which I find uh, very interesting. It's uh, for all the other uh, beating up uh, that we go and do in China day to day about the, uh, the various policy decisions they make. It seems that the rest of the world may be actually borrowing what China is doing right at this moment in time. Hmm. And they may be borrowing it from what we used to do as a nation in the United States. Uh, we, I, I'm one of those who believes that we've, we're suffering from a, to the extent we're suffering, and let's be honest here, I mean, the United States is now in, what, 79 months in a row, a positive month-over-month job growth. That's the longest string of consecutive monthly job growth of, that any president's been able to achieve since 1939 when we first started keeping records. But we have yet to see wages uh, go back up or, or come near to recovering what all of us lost in, in the recession. But I think, Dave, I think you're on to the, um, I think it does require, you know, this, an ecosystemic understanding of how economies work and national economies, uh, has to acknowledge that there's a level of investment that's required for that balance. And absent that investment, uh, things you can't, you can't, you can't sustain an economy simply on monetary policy alone. Yeah, 100%. You know, I think we're seeing, we've, we've seen bond levels uh, fall into negative territory. We've got negative interest rates in some jurisdictions. And I know you look at uh, the ECB, you look at uh, the Bank of Japan, the Swiss National Bank, all have negative interest rates at the moment. They're brought through so much demand that there's no more demand that can be brought through. People who have wanted to go and borrow in the private sector have done so. Uh, now what I think we're seeing is a lot of deleveraging being used in the private sector at this point in time, which is helping to repair balance sheets, both in corporates and, uh, and households. But 
it's very hard to go and stimulate growth during this period of time. So I think that's where the, the job is for policymakers as a stopgap measure to actually go and come in and go and introduce some private work, some public work, should I say, uh, to go and help bolster the economic activity until the private sector feels confident enough to go and start investing, households feel uh, confident enough to start spending more. Once that occurs, and hopefully that does occur, uh, it will go and hopefully allow us to go and push through what's been a pretty uh, uh, lacklustre period of growth since the, uh, the, the Great Recession or the other GFCs we call it down under. Yeah, and we may need to, we ne may need to re-examine this whole notion of growth this unifying economic story of our past, perhaps that's not the story for the future. Perhaps there's a new story emerging that none of us have, none of our leaders have given voice to or narrative to yet that's really more about well-being and about balance. Uh, the big clunky word sustainability is one that comes to mind, but I think most people understand uh, stand this as, as well-being, you know, uh, uh, that chasing growth for the sake of bottom line growth might be a way of actually selling your country short. I mean, if all of your corporations are seeing great bottom line growth, but your people have less and less money to spend, it seems to me you're hurting the well-being of your economy. So this notion of a circular economy or a circulatory economy is one that has within it the understanding that not only as a perhaps a gas pedal during times of, of recession, but as a consistent uh, uh, valve, if you will, a consistent, uh, a consistent piece of a circulatory economy are those public investments in infrastructure and the underpinnings of our common good, uh, of commerce, transportation, the, the water infrastructure, the other things. Uh, maintaining those at a decent level as a, as a part of, of what uh, good management of an economy requires. Paul, you mentioned uh, the auto industry. Donald Trump said that we should have let it go bankrupt. It was President Obama at great political cost that stepped in to bail out the auto industry. A lot of Americans who did, had no relationship to the auto industry were saying, well, where's my bailout? I'm about to lose my home. Why are you giving a bailout to the auto industry? But he understood that that auto industry was the backbone of the industrial sector of our economy, and without it, the whole supply chain uh, goes under. So he did the right thing there. Uh, Michigan's a beneficiary. Ohio's a beneficiary. Uh, and uh, uh, Donald Trump's protectionism uh, is, is really the, the cry of a bottom-feeding hypocrite when you look at how he actually acts because all of the steel for his big projects he imported from China. He tried to hide that fact with a little bit of a shell game. Uh, his, the products he makes from his ties to his barware, and Jesus, even the barware, is from outside of, uh, outside of the United States. So, uh, Well, I saw, you know, uh, just something, you know, he, I think he mentioned again this week that he would force Apple to make iPhones in the United States. I mean... It truly is just um, crazy talk. But it's all appealing in the absence. It's all appealing to, uh, to many people. If you've lost your job because uh, uh, after NAFTA, the Maytag factory in Newton, Iowa was shuttered, and you're in that town and you see that vision, there's an appeal to what he's saying. He's, um, uh, because people see 
see the, the shortcomings that we don't make the investments, trade adjustments for our worker skills to upskill and fill the new jobs that are necessary. People hear these stories of GE or Apple or other big corporations paying no tax and yet offshoring jobs. Uh, and so uh, there, is a, there is a cry out there for someone to give us a better story of what this future looks like in a global economy. Uh, and in the absence of being able to do that, people would rather have no trade than trade that, uh, that hurts and, uh, the, the American economy and manufacturing jobs. Yes, it all reminds me very much of what happened with the uh, UK Brexit that we've uh, seen. It's uh, now, now dominating the, uh, the financial markets and the political uh, space in Europe. Uh, the Trump phenomenon, I think it looks very much like that uh, Brexit campaign and obviously he's behind the polls at the moment, but as we saw with the Brexit uh, referendum polling beforehand, uh, whilst it was closer than what uh, the, the presidential race is at the moment, you don't really know until the actual day and obviously that's probably a call to arms for, uh, for all the Americans out there to get down to the, uh, the polling booths and, uh, and, and vote for this uh, to ensure that uh, something that I think would be destructive, not just for the US economy, but also for the global economy. If Hillary Clinton had one phrase that she could say over and over again to people in the United States for these final 27 days, I believe that phrase would be that I understand that our economy is not money, it's people. It's all of our people. And that's what folks want to hear. They think their individual dignity, the struggle of their own families is not seen by their elected leaders. And they think that uh, their elected leaders are... Uh, uh, are, have given over to this notion that the economy is all about corporate bottom line growth instead of the well-being of families. Uh, can, can I switch channels? Or? Well, just let me pick you up on, on the growth question because, um, you know, if you think about it, so the conventional model in terms of, um, you know, how do we improve people's lives is by adding jobs to the economy so that people can, you know, um, Feed the, fam feed the family first and then um, perhaps build a business, improve their lifestyle. Um, and the, the, what's involved in changing the conversation on that back towards what you, what you alluded to, which is you know, talking about quality, well is very big, very big um, change. Huge. Um, uh, and very, I think, very interesting. Um, but how do you start to to move the dial on that? Because basically, you still don't you still need the job creation at the heart of economic policy, so that there are things for people to get up and do productively every day. Yes, if you have more people. If you don't have more people, maybe you don't need the job production as much. But certainly, if you if you have more people, you do, uh, uh, and 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 that's a valid valid point. Uh, but at the at the same time, uh, the notion that, uh, I mean, I think, it's, I think a lot of it is about the, the concept of balance. If you, have, uh, if you have an economy where corporate profits are growing year over year, but, uh, but the, the well-being of the people of your country is declining year over year by whatever measure you want to put out, longevity, longevity, uh, 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 wages, uh, incomes, uh, then it seems to me that something is out of balance. If you are giving uh, tax breaks 
to the wealthiest numbers of your citizens, but it's at the expense of investments in your transportation, your water infrastructure, your transit, and those sorts of things, then it would seem to me that that is out of balance. In other words, there's a balance required to maintain the common good we share in any part of our ecological footprint nation on the, on the surface of this planet that you want to define. Uh, yes, it's a global economy, but there's also something that I think we could learn, especially from some of those southern European nations, about the, uh, uh, the bio-budget of each part of our, our footprint. Namely, if you are sending as a nation more of your income outside of your country for the basics of food and energy, then you haven't built a balanced and sustainable economy that's circulatory. Uh, and and, uh, and I think that's uh, that's the story that people are 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 waiting to hear. Similarly, uh, when it comes to maintaining a certain portion of your economy, I believe that you have that in order to have a balanced uh, economy, you need a certain portion of it to be manufacturing, uh, and therefore there are certain laws and and policies required of a government to maintain that balance in their economic body. Um, so a big part of this uh, is obviously these, you know, within any national economy, it's broken down into its constituent parts, and the industries tend to uh, be centred around cities. Um, so this is, um, I think, you know, um, a, a big challenge um, for um, advanced countries around the world is, you know, um, how you, and a lot of people increasingly are starting to talk about how we improve our cities for, um, for, for livability. And certainly in Sydney, um, the technology industry here um, uh, likes to talk about what, you know, the kind of great lifestyle that you can have living in Sydney because, you know, you get these fabulous beaches, great weather. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are all sorts of other con- component parts um, to a person's decision to go and maybe live and work in a city and how people feel when they're living there and how productive they can right. be. Um, now, this is an area um, of deep interest to you. You're here in Australia with, um, with uh, ESRI, and you're going to be talking about um, the future of cities um, and, um, and how we sort of – how government and policy can help uh, deliver some of these improvements. Um, you were mayor of Baltimore, uh, and you were recognized for some of the innovative work you did there um, in terms of mapping the city and its services. Can you talk a little bit about that, um, what your experience has been uh, in the past, and then what you think some of the opportunities are for the future? Yeah, I'd love to. <clears throat> in fact, that's, that's exactly why I'm in Sydney. Uh, we crossed a big threshold as, as a species on this planet, and that was just a few years ago. We reached the threshold where a majority of our citizens live in cities now. Uh, that's a big change. And you know, just a couple hundred or 150 years ago, I think only about, what, 3 or 5% of the planet's human beings lived in cities. So there's been a huge shift. I think the future of our planet's going to depend on our making our cities more just, connected, livable, intelligent, compassionate places uh, for, for, uh, for people. And one of the happier lessons I brought home uh, in my short presidential run is that in the United States, people feel a lot better about how their cities are managed, governed, and run today than they did 15 years ago. Uh, Why is that? I'm here today in Sydney with ESRI, probably one of the largest technology, largest far-reaching and far-seeing technology companies that you've never heard of. Uh, ESRI. 
uh, is a geospatial uh, geographic information systems technology company that in my own experience provided the platform in the city of Baltimore that allowed us to create uh, you know, systems of management, getting things done, uh, whether it was filling a pothole in 48 hours or fixing the curb or water main breaks. And they allowed us to do that on an enterprise-wide basis you, and also taking advantage of the Internet to show the operations of government to an entire citizenry. In other words, we've often heard it said, if you work in big organizations, public or private, that everybody keeps their own information, uh, that this part of the organization doesn't talk to the other part of the organization. And that was certainly true in spades when it came to government. Uh, we manage, because of geographic information systems, the map, the ubiquitous map that all of us take for granted now, right? Uh, uh, my kids are, my oldest daughters are 25 and 24. They don't remember a time when you couldn't just pull out your cell phone and see when the Uber car is coming and that it's 10 blocks away and now it's 5 blocks away. And, but this is all a big new deal for governments. I found, we found in the United States, we created a system called CityStat, C-I-T-I-S-T-A-T. All of those separate silos of information within our government were all forced to land on the same GIS map. That showed us the layers, and we started running plays. To Did you have a lot of resistance from the bureaucracy? From oh, the absolutely. I mean, the old rules of government are things like, uh, we tried that and it didn't work. Uh, <laughs> that wouldn't work here. Uh, we're already doing that. Uh, we could find out the answer for you, mayor or minister, but we'll have to take all our people off their other jobs, and it'll take months. All of that crap uh, we cut through, and we also created a bit of a meritocracy. Why? Because we, can pay, we created a compelling scoreboard so everyone could see, not only citizens but people inside government, which were the trash crews that were getting the fewest number of citizen complaints over the last two weeks. Who were the crews repairing the potholes that actually hit that 48-hour guarantee, you know, 99% of the time? And when you lift up the leaders within an organization, show where they are and how they're doing their job on a map that everyone can see, the organization tilts towards the leaders instead of rocking back towards the slackers. And across the U.S., this is how major cities are being run. Seattle, Boston, uh, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Houston. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, we have yet to see that level of openness and transparency really reach states. I did it in my time as governor, uh, but uh, we have yet to see the sort of massive adoption, uh, with one exception. In the Recovery and Reinvestment Act, President Obama's big push as soon as he was elected to spur our economy, all 50 states tracked where those federal dollars went. We did it with the map. We did it with GIS technology made available to every state by ESRI. And um, uh, it was uh, uh, there's so little waste, fraud, and abuse associated with that program, its auditor, uh, veteran, public servant attributes it to the fact that there were 320 million eyeballs watching where those dollars were going, watching them land on the map. And uh, that openness and transparency is a great elixir, if you will, sunlight. It, um, improvement of decisions in real time and you know, just the better flow of information allowing people to... Yeah, it's the, the way I've described it is that um, in the old days, the place of situational advantage for a leader would be high atop, picture in your mind a pyramid, 
high atop a, a, a triangle, if you will, of command and control. And the leader holds all of the information tight and knows that information six months before the people. But in the information age, we all know things before our leaders. And we know as much as our leaders. So the only place of situational, situational advantage for a modern, effective leader is to put her or himself in the center of that emerging truth, in the middle of that map, if you will, in the center of a collaborative circle, and creating, through the executive power, a cadence of accountability, timely meetings every two weeks to ask the question, is what we're doing this week working better than it did last week? If not, why not? And if we found things that work well, how can we do more of them? And if there's things we're doing that aren't working, let's stop doing those things and shift to the things that are. are. It is not an ideological way of leadership. It is entrepreneurial. It is performance measured. And it depends on the common platform that geographic information technology, for the first time, makes available throughout the world. At the, uh, it's a fascinating uh, area because we're really only at the start of this. Yeah. Um, I, I saw a fascinating uh, presentation from Cisco um, earlier this year uh, where um, there was a, one of their senior vi vice presidents was talking about um, some of, he went on to talk about connected cities, but he started with the example of an oil rig. So he shows, shows us an oil rig and says there, there are a million sensors hmm. on this rig. They're all connected, and they're all sent. Um, the way he explained it was it was fantastic. He, he, he said, if you imagine every one of these little sensors um, is like connected to its own sort of company Facebook, and it's posting information on its status in real time. Um, so instead of having a bunch of engineers um, on the rig waiting for something to go wrong um, and to be on hand to fix things as they happen, you can have a guy in Houston um, looking across all of this data uh, and then talking to um, crews of engineers who can go on choppers between the rigs to sort of be like SWAT teams to come in and fix the problems. Um, now, um, obviously, great um, efficiency for the company, um, but also w when, you, when you start to expand this out to the civic space and um, you think about things being connected on infrastructure, transport networks, the tires of buses, um, you know, uh, windows on trains, um, and then into buildings as well. Um, you start to get this enormous, I mean, it's mind-blowing to think about mm -hmm. the, the scale of what is right. likely the to scale. start. Yeah. Technology is not intimidated by scale, yeah. as long as it can refer to the same map. So tell me how you see this now developing over the coming years, because when I sort of listen to that, okay, well, I can understand that the bridge is, or a road, or a train is sending information back to a central sort of area but when you put this all together what are the opportunities and how can you use that um, to uh, create this environment for more productive and as you say balanced cities yeah I, th I think we're moving from the age of uh, uh, moving from the industrial age into the age of biology and I think in all of this stuff for all of the advances of things like sensors I think a way to make sense of it is with our own bodies uh, the sensors, I heard a woman at a very sharp engineer at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh describe the sensors they're putting on bridges that tell them about the structural integrity of that bridge. And she says, because of these sensors, we will know when the bridge is feeling pain. 
I'm not sure 10 years ago any of us would have imagined ourselves thinking about, or let alone giving voice to the phrase, we'll know when the bridge is experiencing pain. But uh, I'm leading a smart cities initiative that's a consortium in America of 38 leading cities and their university partners. The university partners act as the R&D, the cities, well-governed cities, uh, act as the uh, test beds, if you will, for the deployment. And one of the areas that we're pursuing in this uh, uh, collaborative called the Metro Lab Network is about the deployment of sensors writ large, not only in the infrastructure but also to sense the quality of the air. Not only the quality of the air, but when we more and more of us are appreciating the damage that's done by stormwater runoff of the tarmacadden or blacktop or whatever the Australian word is for that, concrete, uh, that increasingly we are installing and designing uh, green infrastructure, you know, the swales, the restoring wetlands and rain gardens and those things, and connecting them with more intelligent gray infrastructure with sensors in them. But the sensors allow us to tell whether we're doing a better job of making, of uh, containing that stormwater, treating it in a more, in a more, in a healthier way so that we're not poisoning our streams as we increase the density of urban living. Uh, making your traffic signals a dynamic system that senses where the traffic is rather than sending, you know, uh, sending out the little uh, hose across the street and, and Mary back at the office counts the number of flump flumps uh, and then you send Nicholas up in a bucket truck with his screwdriver to set the timers, you know. So now uh, that's where it's all headed and cities are leading the way in this. But when you think about the challenge that we face on climate change, the ability to actually map and measure those sensors and the actions and the interventions to model the belief space in the energy we use the, the globe over when it comes to water and the air and the energy and its intersection. I mean, this is a brave new world that's here now. And the cool thing about this technology is that because of GIS and uh, supercomputing and the cloud, we can model belief space at massive scales that we could never have before. And what do I mean by belief space? I mean we can model dynamic systems, uh, e even whole ecosystems, and anticipate with some probabilistic certainty we never could have before what the different action that uh, will have in its impact on that system, whether that different action is this many million solar panels or this shift to natural gas or that shift to green infrastructure. It's an exciting time, and cities are leading the way on this. You know, there's a great Native American proverb that how we treat one another is reflected in how we treat the earth. And I, and I believe that what we're seeing is, you know, in this next phase of our existence on this planet, we're all going to figure out how we can quickly shift beyond the instinct to be conservationists, instead to become master gardeners in designing uh, a healthier and better balanced uh, uh, world for all of humanity. Um, you're certainly very um, uh, passionate about this. Um, uh, which cities do you see now in your travels that are doing this uh, really well? So obviously there's Baltimore, you gave them a bit of a head start, um, but, uh, and you mentioned Seattle and Boston. Where else? 
Well, they're all doing it to one degree or another. I mean, uh, when you say it, uh, I, I take it you mean what cities are governing with GIS and the common platform and performance management? Yeah, showing so you know, getting ahead in this in, in this space where there's some investment or some or a strategy for trying to uh, use the technology to improve government go governance. Yeah, that's a slightly separate question, uh, but they're both related. Um, the um, it's really hard to make your city a hotbed of innovation if you're governing in a way from the 1960s. <laughs> you know? So uh, uh, walking the, the walk is, a, is just as important as talking the talk. Some cities that are doing it well. Uh, we mentioned Boston, Seattle, Washington, D.C. Baltimore had done it well, but we have a new mayor that's about to be elected in the fall. Uh, leadership is always the variable. If your leader isn't putting her or himself in the center of that circle, uh, asking the right questions that push the rock up the hill, it will roll back on you. And we've experienced a little bit of a setback in Baltimore, and, and God willing, we will recover from that. Uh, Houston had a very good mayor. They have a new mayor now uh, who is uh, 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 becoming aware of these systems and I think uh, has the potential to be a great mayor, but they have the uh, tremendous infrastructure in place uh, with uh, geographic information systems, a city governed by its outputs rather than just its inputs. I mentioned uh, Seattle. Uh, San Francisco is a, is a great city. Los Angeles under Mayor Garcetti is really moving this way. Uh, Mike Bloomberg had done great things in New York. His successor, I don't think, quite understands uh, the shift as much governs in a more traditional ideological way from the past. Uh, but but every city is uh, every city's made huge ad advances in this. Um, one of the one of the indicators of whether a city's on moving forward or not is whether or not they have one phone number for all customer service may seem like a little thing, but it's a very democratizing thing to be able to tell your citizens in their poorest areas of your city that their trash complaint will be handled in the same manner in the same time frame that somebody in the wealthiest city. And that's what it all comes down to, right? I mean, these technologies aren't an end in and of themselves, uh, but the use of them for greater service delivery, openness, transparency, justice, well-being, health, those things elevate the level of public trust necessary to make any, you know, civilization function properly. Um, Martin O'Malley, it's been a fascinating chat. Thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you um, now, with, um, with a name like O'Malley, um, clearly you've got a, um, a strong um, Irish connection. Where's the, where's the family from? Yeah, I tell people only on my mother's side. I'm actually part Irish and part German, which means, Paul, that I like to give orders and I don't like to take them. <laughs> but on my dad's part side of the family, my people are from uh, Galway, up in the mountains, right near the Mayo border. So the name of the valley is called the Mam Valley. And so if you take that northern road out of Galway uh, towards Lanan, uh, that's where my great-grandfather immigrated from. Wow, beautiful part of the world. Yeah, um, it sure is. Yeah, it really is. I love it there. I once said to Bertie Ahern, you know, it's a stunningly beautiful place. I'm sure my soul will pass through there when I die, to which he answered uh, very dryly, well, maybe you can come back on holidays in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great country. Yeah. As is yours. I really uh, love Australia. Uh, what a tremendous nation, uh, and it's great to be here with the SRI. Uh, Martin O'Malley, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us on Devils in Details. Uh, I've been here with David Scott. Great to be here. I've just been enjoying the, uh, the last 15 minutes. It's been fantastic.
Uh, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on iTunes under Devils and Details. Uh, where you can find us on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week, um, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks. This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.